You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 15th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. How optimistic can Ukraine and Ukraine's allies be about 2024? Have the prejudices of anti-screen reading snobs been confirmed? And phone hacking returns to haunt the British media. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers who believed that this was going to be Santa's grotto are Julia Lassica, Christy O'Grady, Carlotta Ribello, and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. They will discuss the day's big stories and will have live music from Mac McCohan out of Superchunk. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined, first of all, by Monocle's senior foreign correspondent Carlotta Ribello, our researcher Julia Lassica and studio director and producer of The Foreign Desk, which is one person, not two, Christy O'Grady. Hello to all three of you. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Um, Hi. First of all, because it is that time of year, um, Carlotta, I, I believe that there has been office discourse, which I have largely risen heroically above uh, regarding Christmas sandwiches. Yes. So... As you know, there's a, a great British tradition of... Uh, great is doing a lot of heavy uh, High Street here. supermarkets mm. releasing seasonal sandwiches at this time of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have strong views on it. And we decided that we would do a little taste test um, and compare them. So of the five High Street supermarkets. Um, and we scored them. And there's I, I, a clear winner and a clear loser. Well, I, I, should, um, I should point out to the listeners before... Um, they get too much closer to the edges of their seats, that this was taken quite seriously. There were little forms and and things were judged in a variety of categories. If by little forms you mean uh, Excel spreadsheets and, yes. uh, yeah, the categories were value for money, um, taste, taste uh, <laughs> festive or Christmas spirit, and then the jingle bell factor, which is more subjective. So, Ineffable. So, you know... In, there was one of them that got an extra Jingle Bell Factor point because there was a joke in the packaging. I see. Um, but other other factors like orange chutney could also be included as a Jingle Bell Factor. I, I, Christy, I, I, what I, do you feel about this? I, I am aware that the orange chutney was controversial. Uh, I think we felt with that particular sandwich, it was the orange chutney that actually carried the entire thing. Without Mm. it, it would have been just a sandwich. I mean, riveting, though, this illustration into how very busy we are at this time of year, I'm sure, is for our listeners. Does 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 somebody want to tell us what the results of this experiment were? Uh, Sure. I can take you through from uh, five to one. Go on. Uh, Five being lowest, one being absolute winner. Um, So at number five was uh, Sainsbury's. Uh, Mm. It was just bland. As Carlotta said, how did you describe it? Um, Please don't get me in trouble, but I did say that if you wanted to show someone what COVID tastes like, give them them that sandwich because it tastes of nothing. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And and Sainsbury's, I'm guessing... But they they are the ones that had the joke and got an extra jingle bell factor. Please don't sue me. But without wishing to open up discourse about the class structure of British high street supermarkets, which I assure listeners is a whole other thing, Sainsbury's would not have been the bargain choice, would it? 
Uh, no, no. I mean, I guess, I, well, it wasn't bad on value for money, actually. Okay, okay. It might have been the winner on that. Uh, it was closely followed by Tesco, um, mm-hmm. which usually isn't too bad, but this one, it just wasn't up to par. Uh, middle was Waitrose. Uh, I will well, say that... Well, will be disappointed by that. Well, yeah, I mean, you'd think it would be a clear winner, but unfortunately, when I got there, the turkey and stuffing one had all been sold out. So potentially, that's actually very good. The one, the alternative we tried wasn't. Uh, my favourite came second, close mm-hmm. second, M&S. Okay. Uh, but the actual winner was Co-op, which was a real surprise for all of us. Yeah, <clears throat> none of us was, were expecting it. It was a clear winner. And, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of like Christmas sandwiches or, you know, just Christmas dinner in general, because that's a very novel thing still to me after 10 years in this country. But, you know, it... It was the only sandwich that I would buy again. That's what I would say. It jingled all the way. Jingled all the way. It jingled all the way. And with that, we have, of course, lost all our many listeners at co-op supermarkets who have now just degenerated into a champagne-soaked orgy of celebration of their triumph. But congratulations, co-op. Well done. And, you know, come back and defend the title next year. Uh, But with an absolutely inaudible grinding of gears. We will look first properly at Ukraine. And this week's European Council summit yielded good news and bad news for Ukraine. The good news was that the EU will move ahead with membership talks with Ukraine and with Moldova. The bad news was that Hungary blocked 50 billion euros in extra EU aid for Ukraine, a colossal sum of money, equivalent indeed to about a third of the GDP of Hungary, and that Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban correctly noted that Hungary would be able to veto Ukraine's EU membership further down the line anyway. It is a mixed omen for what will be a crucial year for Ukraine. Um, Julia, first of all, how I mean, how exciting slash reassuring, comforting for Ukrainians uh, was the news that accession talks would begin? Because it was a bit of a surprise that this was the result. Well, to Ukrainians, this is just the next step that we have to take um, before we finally reach the final goal, which is victory, peace and our kind of place in the European family. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's been a long time coming, of course. And so for that reason, it's very important, very kind of um, jubilant making, etc. But I think that... um, It's also a sign, an interesting sign of the European Union's kind of ability to actually manoeuvre with Orban and um, and to kind of get its way finally and for Ukraine to sort of create this flexibility in the European Union, which is really interesting because it's something they've been sort of aiming towards. But just to follow that up, Julia, it, Ukraine obviously very far from out of the woods and as Viktor Orban rather unpleasantly noted, this is only the beginning of an extremely long process in which any number of things could still go wrong or hold it up. But more immediately, there is the hold-up of EU aid uh, to Ukraine, thanks to Orban being a jackass. And there is the holdup on US aid, thanks to various uh, of the Republican Yahoo caucus in the House of Representatives being jackasses. Um, between those two things, how nervous does Ukraine feel about what the next year might hold? I think it's a dark time. I think it could be very easy to fall into... Um, you know, tata, um, utter um, kind of disillusion. But Ukrainians have been at war with Russia for the last eight years, since mm-hmm. 2014. Um, Ukrainians have been in much worse situations. Um, and Ukrainians know that all they have to do is persevere. They have to hold on in the same way that Russia is kind of banking on the idea of holding on. 
Um, And there are ways around these ideas of like, you know, aid being withheld. For example, when... um, Ruta lost the Dutch vote. Um, he still made arrangements for Ukraine to carry on receiving aid from the Dutch, uh, from the Dutch, and so that and EU uh, ministers have signalled that there will still be aid coming to Ukraine in other kind of packages in other forms. So there is this kind of growing sense of flexibility, like I said before, um, and. There's, there's always a surprise waiting around the corner. So I think Ukrainians are just kind of holding on, persevering and trying to keep going, you know. Um, Carlos, do we entirely understand yet quite what Viktor Orban's thing is? Because he is, of course, the prime minister of a former Warsaw Pact country, a small former Warsaw Pact country, which has been invaded by Russia at least once, more or less within living memory, imprisoned by Russia for decades, uh, and is now exactly the kind of country that Russia would be invading if it wasn't a member of the EU and NATO. Yeah, and that's why I think it's quite tricky to really figure out what his end game here is. I mean, Orban has, for lack of better words, tried to play this very carefully, where anger, angering just enough each side, but not to the extent that he would be shunned upon. You know, uh, he might not have been, you know, uh, on board fully at the EU summit, but had the courtesy of step out of the room when the membership accession uh, discussion was going on. So that allowed for it to happen. For Russia, he can say, well, I wasn't even there. I wasn't involved in that decision. You know, Orban, we know, has always um, towed within the line, more or less, that's coming out of Russia and coming out of the Kremlin. He's mentioned, you know, that the importance for him is business and business deals. And that actually, and this is something he has said before, that like he actually um, has the more measured uh, approach because he doesn't see... um, Ukraine as a future EU member, but as a buffer zone. And this is worrying, of course, because that's language that's used by Vladimir Putin himself. Uh, and this, you know, careful line that his he's trodden, like steering very clear of criticism of Vladimir Putin, but at the same time, um, you know, still uh, a EU uh, member and still a part of these important discussions is quite interesting. I mean, you were talking about aid. In one of the things, you know, he has been opposed to EU sanctions on Russia from the very beginning and even now doesn't allow physically for EU and NATO military aid to go through his country into Ukraine. And, you know, he his argument then is by saying, well, I'm refusing to do so because if we prolong this war, if we send this aid to prolong the war, we're prolonging the agony of Ukrainians. So I'm actually, I'm being really the good guy here. So, you know, this is a man that is choosing his words careful, carefully. And I think, um, yeah, not saying he's been measured, but uh, he's just making people angry enough to mark a position, but not enough to um, be completely shunned out by uh, each of these sides. Um, Julia, just finally on this, and to bring it back to how 2024 is is shaping up for Ukrainians, I guess if we think of next year measured against the previous two, obviously at the start of 2022, there was uh, great trepidation in Ukraine, most obviously, but around the world as this Russian military buildup along the border got more and more serious and more and more ominous and this time two years ago we were thinking are they really going to do this this time last year I think there was actually quite an amount of optimism uh, about Ukraine in that Russia's initial assault had failed. They hadn't seized the country and toppled its government uh, as they hoped to. There was already talk of this uh, summer's counter-offensive. If you measure 
I guess, the the outlook of 2024 against the previous two years. How does it feel to you? I think it's sort of a question that you might be able to ask in peacetime where you can sort of think one day ahead, two days ahead, a week, a month. Whereas for Ukrainians, sort of it's every day and you just sort of see what happens. But the most important thing is that we can't stop thinking that Ukraine will stop existing because then people, you won't have your home sort of thing. So um, I think... What will happen will happen, but the most important thing is that Ukrainians will fight no matter what happens. So that's kind of it in a nutshell. Julia Lassica, thank you for joining us. Christy and Carlotta, do stay with us. You are listening to The Daily. We will move along now to a new study by Boffins at the University of Valencia, who have reached conclusions confirming the prejudices of that generation who negotiated the transition from the printed page to the digital screen, i.e. that reading in print is vastly superior to reading on screen in terms of promoting comprehension and retention of information and all those other reasons to subscribe to fine print products, such as to cite an example plucked from the ether completely at random Monocle magazine. I'm joined with more on this by Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Monocle's senior correspondent, host of The Stack, and it says here, the king of magazines. Fernando, have you been tampering with the daily script again? Well, you know what? Today I self-declared myself the king of magazines because I is, looked... Is that why you're wearing the tiara? Exactly. Okay, fine. But Andrew, I looked around my desk. You know how many magazines, different types of magazines I have in my desk? 312. Okay, it's a bit less than that. Okay. It's 73. That's, actually, but, but that's actually more than... That's pretty that's, good. That is quite a lot. Uh, listeners, quite a lot. <laughs> listeners, you should see the state of his desk. I mean, the fact that he's got 73 magazines there is no surprise to anybody in this office. He could have the HMS Ark Royal on there and we we could easily have lost it. Um, so are you quite excited by this, this research, Fernando? Because I am. I... I it, it confirms quite a lot of what I have long suspected. Same here, uh, Andrew. And of course, I have nothing against reading digitally. And to be honest, even the people who did the study, they also have nothing against. But the reality is we don't concentrate as much when no. we read online. And that's obvious to me. It makes my eyes feel tired. Mm-hmm. So perhaps on social media, it's okay. It's a bit shorter. But when I have to read a long article or perhaps a book even, for me, it's frankly impossible. And one interesting thing about the study different ages, it's all the same. See, uh, that that interests me because I was wondering if it was generational because obviously I grew up reading print and had to learn how to read on screens, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s. And for me, the difference has always been that if I'm reading something for pleasure, I want a book or I want a magazine or I want a newspaper. I read on screens for work all the time, but that's just to absorb information as quickly as I can. I don't really take any pleasure in it. Well, it's interesting because a lot of people think that there is this generational gap. Of course, the younger you are, the more kind of connected you are with the virtual Mm. world. Uh, But Lydia Altamura, the co-author of the study, says that, you know, it really doesn't matter, actually. So even in schools, she said that it's very important that you still have physical books. I mean, it's not that you can't use your iPads or kind of virtual learning, but kids also will concentrate better uh, reading books. And to be honest, Andrew, even doing the stack, my show about books and magazines, the market for uh, magazines and books about for kids, it's huge and it's getting bigger. So I think there is generally still a market for that as well. Because I do also recall, and I don't know if this study gets into it, reading another study uh, along similar lines a few years ago, which made the point that our, our minds retain 
information we read differently. And one of the ways our minds retain what we have read is it kind of maps where in a given book or magazine we read it, which is why, as they pointed out, if you've been reading a book and you pick it up again, you can usually find your page really quite quickly, not even without a bookmark. Well, that's one of the things that's been mentioned in the study, say that if you're reading something online, you're not fully immersed in the mm. narration. And I think this comes particularly across with books, with fiction books as well. But, you know, I would I would also say if you're reading a New Yorker profile, reading online, I mean, it's very tiring as well. Uh, and the one thing I have to say about this study, it's been conducted between 2000 and 2022 with 470,000 participants. But this study is a bit different, it's kind of a mix of 25 five other studies. So they kind of compiled all the information and they realized, I mean, what we always believed it was true, Andrew, that actually reading in print, it can boost your skills by six to eight times more than if you read something digitally. So the message is then to read magazines and read books. Um, And Fernando, just finally on that thought and going back to that riotous heap of publications on your desk, 73 was it? 73. 73. I've counted. I'm know. sure you have. Um, is there a current magazine, so maybe like a new publication on the newsstand that you have recently been reading and thinking, wow, this is really good. I should tell people about this. I mean, obviously, we're taking as understood that we think everybody listening to us should subscribe to Monocle magazine, or indeed, though they are on the screen to our daily email newsletter, which is free, that figure again, free, but what else should people be reading when they are not reading Monocle? Well, I have a recommendation here. I think people should read, in fact, it's an Australian title. There we go. Yes, it's called Swill. It's a quarterly food magazine, incredibly edited by and me. It's called, it's called Swill. Swill. See, this this is the Australian <laughs> sense of humour in Excelsis. <laughs> this I like. Beautiful photography, huge format as well. And, you know, I was in Australia recently. You were? I have to be honest, you know, I felt that the Australian newsstands, they were suffering a bit, where the commercial titles, but Swill was everywhere. People loved it. <laughs> you know, sorry. People in Australia love Swill. They love, they love a little bit of Swill. Um, I think that's my recommendation. And, of course, if you want more tips... Tune into the stack. You know, every week there are plenty of recommendations in there. When does the stack air, Fernando? Every Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. And tomorrow is going to be a special one. I visited Idea Books where they sell rare magazines. Uh, They cost a lot, but they're worth it. And of course, listening to the stack does pass some of those empty, agonising hours on a Saturday morning before the foreign desk comes on at midday. Uh, Tune in to The Stack with Fernando Augusto Pacheco, the king of magazines, at 10am tomorrow. Fernando, thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Carlotta Ribello and Christy O'Grady. And here in the UK, a nervous interregnum beckons for tabloid media grandees of a certain generation. The High Court has ruled in bracing and unequivocal terms that Prince Harry was the victim of phone hacking by Mirror Group newspapers for six years between 2003 and 2009. The Prince has been awarded damages of £140,600, a tidy stack to anybody but him, but it might only be the beginning of what it costs his persecutors, certain of whom, named by the judge, have appeared at previous inquiries into such conduct and denied everything under oath on penalty of perjury. One such, former Daily Mirror editor Piers Morgan, has within the last couple of hours denied everything again. I've never hacked a phone or told anybody else to hack a phone and nobody has produced any actual evidence to prove that I did. 
I wasn't called as a witness, and it's important for people to know this, by either side in the case, nor was I asked to provide any statement. I would have very happily agreed to do either or both of those things had I been asked. But I note the judge appears to have believed the evidence of Omid Scobie, who lied about me in his new book, and he lied about me in court, and the whole world now knows him to be a deluded fantasist. And he believed the evidence of Alistair Campbell, another proven liar who spun this country into an illegal war. Finally, I want to say this. Prince Harry's outrage at media intrusion into the private lives of the royal family is only matched by his own ruthless, greedy and hypocritical enthusiasm for doing it himself. He talked today about the appalling behaviour of the press. But this is a guy who's repeatedly trashed his family in public for hundreds of millions of dollars, even as two of its most senior and respected members were dying, his grandparents. It's hard to imagine, frankly, more appalling behaviour than that. As for him saying this is a good day for truth, the Duke has been repeatedly exposed in recent years as someone who wouldn't know the truth if it slapped him around his California tanned face. Piers Morgan denying everything earlier. Um, Christie, bearing in mind the extremely important caveat that everybody is denying everything, nonetheless, where would we rate our levels of astonishment uh, at what the judge had to say in this ruling today? Uh, yeah, pretty pretty low. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think it was a surprise for anyone. Um, but... I don't know. For me, it feels like we're just flogging a horse that was killed a long time ago. I, I'm i not confident that we will see real change beyond this because I think we've had so many moments where we could have seen real change. And we've had so many moments where people promise that this changes everything, we will behave ourselves from now on, most obviously the death of Prince Harry's mother in 1997, after the Leveson inquiry 2011-2012, whenever that was. And yet, Carlotta, the British media goes back to doing what segments of the British media do. Yes, this feels like a very particular British media scandal, you know. We will be giving Christie shortly the opportunity to speak up for her people. <laughs> Half of her people. But, but, but Carlotta, if you, if, you, if you want to advance the case for the prosecution there. <laughs> no, it is, of course, like, I don't think it came as a surprise, the ruling to anyone. It's more, I think it was more a case of whether or not what everyone already thought would be uh, supported by uh, the judge. And, you know, it raises a lot of questions about the conduct of uh, particularly tabloid journalists in this country and the culture that has long not only uh, surrounded them, but all influenced them, but also protected them in a way. You know, this appetite for the more more sordid details of people's lives, that's what has allowed for practices like these to become so common that for so long, no one really questioned it until eventually it would become tragic. Um, and for me, that's what's actually quite sad about the story is that we know, and unfortunately, nothing is going to change. It's just a matter of letting the dust settle and in a few years from now, some sort of other hacking will come out. We see stories moving a bit away from this particular case, but we see stories again and again of celebrities getting their emails, their iClouds, whatever it is, constantly hacked, mm -hmm. exposed out there into the world. And it just gets to a point that, you know, there needs to be some sort of accountability and people 
like the ones here in this uh, judgment need to be exposed. Uh, Christy, to be clear, um, we can't really beat up on the Brits untowardly over this. Fun though that would be for everybody because every country which has a free or freeish media has a section of that media which is awful and which is petty and spiteful and vindictive. Australia sure as hell does. Carlotta, I'm sure Portugal does as Mm. well. But it does strike me, Christy, that the British media in particular, and I don't don't know if you can have one without the other, and this is the tabloid media I'm talking about, at its best, it's tremendous. It's it's rumbustious, it's irreverent, it's campaigning. It does really give a voice to the people in a way that I think a great tabloid newspaper can. But far too often, it's... it's, it is this stuff. It is just incredibly nasty and incredibly entitled to, I think, to an unusual degree. Do you think that's fair? And if so, why? Yes, I do. And I think it's because it's not just the celebrity, it's not just the politicians that are the victims of uh, these hacking scandals. Mm. Um There were some other settlements, quite a lot of other settlements on the 5th of December of this year. Um, A lot of them celebrities, uh, Chris Hume, the MP, but one of them was actually uh, a victim of the 7-7 terrorist attacks. Uh, She was on the top deck of a bus um, and her face was so badly burned uh, that someone, I think, had to make a makeshift mask. People Um, will remember that photo. Exactly. So she became famous through the use of that photo, um, obviously without her consent. And then beyond that, she was hacked, she was followed to the point where she became paranoid. uh, And that was all done by the press. And why? You know, who you would like to think that at some point somebody gets that voice in their head asking, mate, what the hell are you doing right now? Right. And also... That's actually the least bad thing that mm. the British press have done with their hacking. The Leveson inquiry came about most notably because of the murder of a, a girl mm-hmm. um, where her phone was hacked. They hacked into her voicemails. Uh, I think it was that they knew where she was, but they wanted to keep that information for themselves to take credit. But also alongside that, um, there was a murder in the 1980s of a man called Daniel Morgan. Mm-hmm. He was a private investigator um, and he was murdered because he was going to whistleblow on uh, the police working with the press. The police initially, before phone hacking was a thing, would leak information to the press and then it ended up that uh, when fo- phone hacking became a thing that the press would give information to these former police officers uh, and the murder investigation has crumbled so many times because of the relationship between the press and these former Met Police officers. And that, for me, is the most insidious thing. I don't know if any other uh, country in the world has a journalism that has such dark secrets and has um, obstructed the justice system so many times and in such hideous ways. Well, we may be learning uh, more about that shortly as this unravels further, but just finally on this, Carlotta, and this is where I shamelessly insert my own prejudices into the discourse framed as a question. I remember thinking, and I think actually writing uh, at the time about the Leveson inquiry, that there was one witness missing from the stand, which is a representative reader. I would like to have seen somebody who helps create the market for this drivel put in the dock and just asked, why are you reading this garbage? Well, the thing is, it would be, in a way, 
quite easy to get someone for both sides of that argument, you know, which is what makes tabloid journalism so popular. As you were saying just earlier, Andrew, you know, at its best, it's actually a great spokesperson of, you know, the people and a barometer of what actually mm-hmm. uh, the country is thinking. But then, you know, these sort of stories really do ruin lives. And as Christy was just saying, when it gets to a level that is obstruct justice. And I know that like with one of those cases was a case that because the phone was hacked and they were listening to voicemails, the police thought the victim was alive and able to listen to their voicemails. And that's horrendous. And one of the things that came out uh, of today's uh, ruling was that, you know, the judge uh, accepted an account by another journalist about them getting information from voicemail. So it seems that nothing has changed. They were In this case, it was a story about celebrity Kylie Minogue. Fine, but it's fine, which is not fine, but it's not about obstru- obstructing justice in that sense. But it shows that nothing has changed. And that's why I'm quite sceptical that something will change. I'll add just here a bit uh, of my own country, Portugal. Not going to say this doesn't happen because God knows what happens inside the newsrooms of tabloids in in Portugal. But we do have um, quite a strict way of looking at these sort of things because until 1974, we had a dictatorship where being listened to and listened by the state police, by your neighbours who'd be paid for giving your secrets was a thing. So um, there's a bit of cautiousness there. Uh, Of course, as older generations start to die and the legacy of what it was like to live under dictatorship starts to disappear from memory and becomes just history, that will change. And we're seeing that with the rise of the far right in Portugal. But I'll leave you with a funny tidbit. With Correio da Manhã, that's the equivalent of our The Sun newspaper, the biggest, uh, most read, most scandalous uh, tabloid uh, in Portugal. They uh, often write stories about uh, famous footballer Cristiano Ronaldo from my island, Madeira. Uh, Most of them are fake uh, or hard to verify, but there's no way to prove one way or another. So after years and years of, you know, scandals about his family, about girlfriends, that's girlfriends, lovers, trips, money... He just bought the newspaper and he allows them to do any type of journalism they want, but they can no longer write about him. So maybe that's the way of doing it. Maybe Prince Harry can take some of this money and just, you know, just try to buy some shares. Carlotta Ribello and Christy O'Grady, though I worry we're giving people ideas. Thank you both. Now, people will be going to the polls in Serbia this weekend for parliamentary elections. It is a test for the governing progressive party of President Aleksandr Vucic. They have been in power since 2012, but this time they are facing a largely united opposition. Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, reports from Belgrade. So, water cross, basically. <laughs> There's a jovial mood here at the Belgrade headquarters of the Green Left Front. They're staging a pre-election event with the European Greens. And the reason for the light-hearted atmosphere is perhaps that they're part of something bigger in Serbia as well. The Green Left Front are one of 15 parties who've joined a coalition called Serbia Against Violence. And that's presenting the most serious electoral challenge to the governing progressive party in more than a decade. 
now we saw that there is also a coherence to say like that or a joint effort in the joint oppositional list and that is something which will provide the effect. Dobritsa Veselinovic is leading the Green Left Front's campaign for Belgrade municipality. After the boycotting the elections in 2020 we saw new faces in the both city and the national parliament and also we saw after one and a half year uh, again the new political crisis and new uh, elections that Progressive Party is made to do, to, to, to call it. Uh, in that sense, I'm optimistic. What's the best that you can hope for, then, if this is a stepping stone? What constitutes mm. a significant step along those stones? Mm, I would say that the, the liberation of the Belgrade and opposition wins in Belgrade and, and forms the, the clear majority and overthrown the Progressive Party. I will say that on the parliamentary level is that we have double the numbers of the MPs and, uh, and uh, group, oppositional groups in the parliament and also substantial gain in, uh, in some of the cities which is run by the, the Progressive Party. The call for elections followed months of weekly protests in Belgrade and other big cities. People marched under the banner Serbia Against Violence. The demonstration started after two mass shootings on consecutive days in May horrified the country. But quickly, opposition parties got involved. They claimed the shootings reflected a culture of rhetorical and physical violence promoted by President Aleksandr Vucic, the Progressive Party and their allies in the media. Eventually, they demanded fresh elections, even though the last polls were only held in April last year. Prime Minister Anna Barnabic told me she was delighted to agree. In the spirit of democracy, we wanted to say yes. As a party, and I speak now as a, as a member of the uh, SNS, Serbian Progressive Party, we never run away from elections. We, you know, if, if someone thinks that uh, we have lost legitimacy and wants, wants to double-check it, we, we can always do that and, and see however people vote, we will respect that. What does it do for the country, though, that you're so frequently on an election footing? This time, again, it comes after terrible tragedies of the 3rd and 4th of May, which I think should not have been used for politics. And I think that the opposition got it wrong. I think that the people will feel that their emotions were misused. But I am uh, quite positive, and that is also what the President uh, Aleksandr Vucic uh, has said, is that after these elections, the government will have a full term, a full mandate, and that the next elections that we will have will be in 2027. And I think Serbia needs that kind of stability. But some parties believe there's nothing accidental about the regular elections. Former Foreign Minister Vuk Jeremic is the leader of the People's Party, which isn't in the Serbia Against Violence coalition. He says the plethora of polls is all about control. It's been like this uh, for about 11 years since uh, the inception of this regime led by Alexander Vucic, you know, to make sure opposition is down, to basically have constant elections constantly, to exhaust everybody financially, uh, mentally... If people are fed up with the elections, then the turnout isn't that high. Uh, the government uh, is, of course, better. They can uh, whip up their political heartland and they can make sure that they have very high participation of their voters and 
And for basically everybody else, this becomes terribly tiring and exhausting. That's not the Progressive Party's only advantage. The governing party enjoys friendly coverage from much of the media, and their trump card is Serbia's president. Aleksandr Vucic projects an image of complete control and warns that only the progressives can be trusted to govern responsibly. He isn't up for election himself, but he's given his name to the progressives' electoral list, and he's all over the airwaves. When we ask citizens, uh, can you tell us, is President Vucic the candidate? 60% would say, yes, he's the candidate in these elections. And by the way, we have parliamentary elections, we have provincial elections, we don't have the presidential elections. And it's a huge deception. Rasha Nadelkov is the program director of the Election Monitor, the Center for Research, Transparency and Accountability. In media, especially those mainstream, most influential for Serbian citizens' media, the, there is a, a chronic lack of pluralism. In past year, 95% of all interlocutors in central news in five national TV stations were reserved for one group, group that is in the government, in a neutral and in a positive tone. In 2023, President Vucic addressed the nation live more than 260 times, in average 35 minutes. That means the opposition are facing an uphill struggle to get heard. Victory was the call at the final pre-election rally of the Serbia Against Violence coalition. Nationally, they know that's optimistic, but Belgrade's municipal elections are another matter. A change in the capital would certainly cause a shake-up. For Monocle in Belgrade, I'm Guy Delaunay. Thank you, Guy. This is The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Finally on today's show, live music. And the live musician who will very shortly be providing it is Mac McCorn. Mac founded Superchunk in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, circa the late 1980s, and around the same time launched the formidable indie label Merge Records. Both Superchunk and Merge have weathered any number of music industry upheavals to still be going concerns. I, I did want to start with the bumper 50-track compilation you recently released. I, I liked the title Misfits and Mistakes, which I thought was a remarkably honest assessment of the back catalogue. I always wonder uh, when musicians put together something like this, how much of what they recorded years, even decades ago, they listen to now and just think, oh God, who wrote this? Well, we have a song called Misfits and Mistakes, that is on this compilation. It was a single that we recorded for a, for a movie, for an animated film. And uh, that track name was just sitting right there for, <laughs> for us to use, you know what I mean? And I, I, I did express some concern that maybe it's underselling the, <laughs> the four LP box set that we're trying to get people to buy, you know what I mean? But um, then our drummer... John pointed out that REM called their B 
B-Sides Collection did let her office. So <laughs> there's, you know, I think people can see past the self-deprecating aspect of it, hopefully. Hey, this box set is a sort of the collected works from about 2007 onwards. Obviously, Super Chunk's story goes back a lot further than that. When you think back on what became known as the grunge era, which Super Chunk were seen as part of, though you weren't from Seattle, um, what do you feel about it now? Does it feel like a peculiar moment to have participated in? When I think about it, I think about it very fondly because that moment when we were starting up and in some some ways latching on to the coattails of bands that had started just before us, like mm. Mud Honey, which is the band that we opened for the first time we came to tour in Europe. You know, like we were talking about this in the van the other day. There, like you said, it is kind of referred to as grunge or there's different terms for that music of that era, but all the bands were really so different. Like I don't really think of our records as sounding like for instance, Mud Honey, and other bands that we started with on our label merge, like Palvo or the Magnetic Fields, are certainly not grunge. But there was this kind of feeling of a community of independent musicians mm. doing things in kind of a new way. And I think that the the difference between us and and what was considered grunge musically is that I feel like they were more 70s influenced mm. And we were more maybe late 70s like Buzzcocks, but then really 80s in terms of like Husker Du and Sonic Youth influenced, you know. Um, you mentioned Merge, uh, the record label you, you founded at around the same time that Superchunk were founded, which is an extraordinary story in itself. And I appreciate that there may not be a short answer to this question, but it's the one about how much of a challenge it has been keeping that label going over the decades and decades in which the music business has been turned upside down and pulled inside out in at least half a dozen different ways I can think of. It's true. There's been several waves, as you say, of technology or other things that just change the way that everyone's doing things. And I think in some ways we've tried to adjust but not completely change the way that we do things in terms of working with bands that we love, whether it's Ibibio Sound Machine from here in London or, you know, bands from North Carolina that we work with, like His Golden Messenger. We're still kind of focused on the music and then, again, trying to kind of, like, keep up and not be too um, disrupted by, quote-unquote, disruptors, I guess you would <laughs> say. Um, but that has become more and more difficult. You know, like, I feel like there is often has been like a panic in the music industry, like home taping, mm. you know what I mean? <laughs> Compact discs, like all these things, you know, Napster or whatever, these things that ended up still fostering eras of people being able to sell lots of records, make money, making music, and, and artists were able to survive off of that. Streaming, I feel like, is a different direction. Mm. And it's the direction is down in terms of... Um, the amount of money that artists make for their work and obviously record labels alongside of that. So it's becoming harder and harder to 
exists in the same way. And we're always trying to figure out ways to do that. But streaming does not make it easy. I, I want to ask about the more recent Superchunk records, uh, What a Time to Be Alive and Wild Loneliness. Is, is it right, do you think, to hear those as responses to specific moments? Uh, what a Time to Be Alive, very uh, Donald Trump-focused, fairly unmistakable subtext there. And I was wondering if the same applies to Wild Loneliness about the pandemic, which I know is extremely hard uh, on lots of musicians who are by inclination not really a stay-at-home-and-do-nothing kind of crowd. Sure. I think that we've always written songs that were relating to what was going on around us at the time. And, of course, when you're 22 or 25, like, you're pretty (laughs) self-centered. And so what you're writing about is just like, what's in my brain? Or like, you know... I'm the most interesting person in the world. Yeah. And so then I think that... For, for me anyway, you know, like as you get older, you're like, okay, I'm not that interesting even to myself anymore. <laughs> so let me, but, and, and you can't help but, you know, again, there's always people who will say like, oh, stick to music. Don't, you know, bring politics into this or that or whatever. But it's like, we live in the world, you know, mm. like we're affected by everything that's happening in politics. And so I think to ignore that or pretend like that there wasn't stuff going on, whether it's politics or a global pandemic would be kind of a strange thing if you just came out with a record that could have been made in any other year, mm. you know what I mean? But at the same time, you don't want to make music or art that feels dated five years later. So hopefully you, as an artist, are able to uh, inject something universal into all of it so that you still want to put that record on five or ten years later and and don't think like, oh, that's just about this one thing. I don't need to hear that anymore, you know. Well, that kind of brings us, I guess, to the song you're going to do for us. And I am looking forward to hearing how this one sounds acoustically. Um, Introduce it for us, if you would. Sure. Well, this is a song that the song is called Learned to Surf. And it's it was originally on the Majesty Shredding album, but it was also a single that we released on 147 Records here uh, in... The UK um, and the acoustic version that is on the record was a, a demo essentially that's on the box set, and then the studio version is kind of like the first real rock version that we did of this song. It's different than the version that's on Majesty Shredding, and Majesty Shredding was a record we made after about eight years of not making new music, mm. and so it was there was eight years kind of stored up of like thinking about what we liked about playing music and what was going on with ourselves as like adults now, you know, mm. and trying to sort of like, yeah, ride the currents of like being an adult with children and all kinds of other things happening in our lives that weren't happening, you know, the last time we had made a record, basically. And so Learn to Surf is um, a song that I really like playing and... It's one of my favorites on the on the box set. Let's hear it.
colossal super chunk box set, Misfits and Mistakes, Singles, B-Sides and Strays, 2007 to 2023, is available now, and there is still time for you to buy it and make the Christmas of the super chunk fan in your life. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Julia Lassica, Christy O'Grady, Carlotta Ribello and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Today's show was produced by Vincent McAvenny and researched by Neoma Aque. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening.